Well, hello, DA, future fossils. I don't even know where to start with this episode. It's an extra long and amazing conversation. Uh, there's a lot of new ground broken for the show in this episode, including the first appearance of guest co-host Naomi Most, along with uh, two amazing guests, uh, Tada Hazumi and Dare Sohei, discussing cultural somatics, which let's unpack that a little bit, just a little. We're talking about pretty much everything we have ever talked about on this show in in terms of complex systems, trauma, society, memory, creativity, art, inspiration, transcendence, interpersonal dynamics, what it means to participate in something greater than oneself, the post-human ontologies of our bizarre and dimensional world. It's an incredibly deep and rich and fascinating discussion, and I'm delighted that I get to share it with you. I'm not going to preface it any more than that. But before we get started, I really want to give a huge, deep, open blast of praise to all of the folks on Patreon supporting Future Fossils, including new members Patrick M. DiCarlo, Mark Bunger, Leslie Bumstead, Ulrich Kramer. Your support is the evidence that this podcast is making an, an impact in some way, is, is a positive feature on this planet. You know, it's not too weird to live and too rare to die. There's so much going on right now, uh, so many things clamoring for our attention, and I am deeply and genuinely moved to know that there are as many people as there are out there listening and, and benefiting from these discussions. This is not an easy-to-digest program. These ideas are complex and difficult. These conversations are deep and soul-searching and it's not for everybody, you know, so I, I really value the fact that we've managed to gather so many like-minded people together into a really beautiful community, actually. Uh, the Future Fossils Discord server is popping off. If you would like an invite, uh, please email futurefossilspodcast at gmail.com and I'll hook you up. I'd love to see you in there. But because I am so insanely busy being a parent and working for the Santa Fe Institute and now also working for the Long Now Foundation, the people that inspired this podcast in the first place, and that will, by the way, for sure loop around to nourish this show a lot in the months and years to come, I have no doubt. Uh, but all of those things mean that Future Fossils has had to become something new and different. And I just want to thank everyone who's been listening to this show and sharing the show with their friends and providing the support this show requires in order to thrive as we dance together into new configurations. Patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Go explore all of the wonderful things I have posted there for everyone to enjoy. And uh, let me know what you think about this episode. This is just the seed crystal for a much, much larger conversation. 
and I'd love to hear your perspectives on it. All right, everybody into the pool. Do you want to give us a short little blurb of why I started this podcast, just in general? Uh, yeah, this a little context. This show, for context, started. I was speaking on the festival circuit uh, about like evolutionary biology and philosophy of science, and um, pushing those into uh, some areas that uh, you know were uh interrogations of modernity and of like silicon valley futurism and uh you know following in the footsteps of people like eric davis to you know discuss the the revival of pre-modern ways of knowing in the postmodern but also you know really championing like um multi-perspectival multi-methodological thought and any, so anyway people really uh supported that and encouraged me to start a show and it was originally about time and about like standing in a um kind of a timeless presence or conversation with our ancestors and our descendants as though they you know like they're here they're present with us now and exploring non-linearity in time and then that that kind of has branched out in a number of ways and like part of it's like a you know, kind of like a time capsule to the unborn generations that might want to know something about this, this period as like an era about which they have very little to go <laughs> off of, you know, right. compared to what they would want, right. you know, that like, like all, like all archaeology, it's like, well, you know, we're digging through the trash and in, in, in their case, probably the trash is like podcasts. <laughs> so, it's true. That's but, um, yeah. And then, you know, that just eventually, it, I I got over feeling like oh well the largest audience for this show is unborn um because people kept checking me on the sort of conceit that anyone's going to care what we're talking about in 10 years or 100 years and and then it became just more about helping people navigate the weirdness you know okay so well that that sounds good right like there I don't know speaking to descendants that feels like feels good to me I'm not going to have any children of my own probably but um uh, we all have children. Idea we babies. Mimetic children. That's right. Yeah, maybe mimetic yeah. babies. It's all, yeah. it's all sex all the way, every direction. Maybe, <laughs> maybe tell them the world is fucked. I hope it's. Oh. I hope it's good for you. Well, the world's not fucked. It's pretty fucked. <laughs> While we're still not in the beat of the episode, I want to tell you guys that last week I got. I, I took the heroic dose at home in, of mushrooms, and I heard this clear message from Earth screaming to be heard by other planets that everything we were doing right now was was beside the point. <laughs> okay. Really? So I yeah. I've never done psychedelics other than once, so I guess I'm stepping into the fold here a bit, maybe. Mm. Although somebody was, said, yeah. So far aside from the point of this episode that I just wanted to... So I needed no, to vocalize I, that I experienced what I can only describe as climate grief yeah. to to an extreme right. last week. 
I, I thought I was going to work on relationship issues, but it turned out to be <laughs> a planet's worth of, of communicated trauma that we had to get a message out to some other planet. Okay. I think climate grief and relationship work are kind of the same thing. Yeah. Is, it, it did end up being, uh, it, it did end up being helpful relationship wise, yeah. which was strange. <laughs> you know, death, you, death, death solves all, uh, Supposed problems, but just not in the way that you expect. Mm. Yeah. Everyone, welcome. This is a, an exciting sort of experiment with Future Fossils podcast, where I have uh, Naomi here to guest co-host for the first time. She's been really active in the Facebook group and the Discord server, and I'm really pleased to have you. And uh, Tata and Dare, it's a, a pleasure to line this up with you as well, because I feel like your work is is in some very awesome and interesting spaces that deserve a little bit more time and, and discussion. So thanks everyone for being here. No, thank you. Thank you so thanks, much. Michael. So we haven't really rehearsed what a co-hosting episode looks like. And I feel like, you know, Naomi, you can kind of jump back and forth into guest mode when, as you please, but I think it would just make sense to have everyone give a little bit of background about, about themselves um, before we, we start diving into a discussion of the ideas here and whoever wants to pick up on that, uh, please feel free. I, I, I can go. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm Naomi most and, uh, you know, if you, if you look at, um, who I am on a sort of LinkedIn resume kind of format. It looks like I am a software engineer. Um, but the way that I think of myself is more of a co community leader. And, uh, for the past 11, almost 12 years, I've been a member at a place called Noisebridge, a Noisebridge hackerspace in San Francisco, which was the first hackerspace created, uh, in North America. Um, uh, was inspired by ones in Europe and, uh, over the past decade, I've been seeking better understanding as to what makes a community community and how to uh, unearth the, the values that bind people together while also still leaving wiggle room for people's individuality and their own identities to show up. Um, and most recently, I've been very curious and um, deep diving into how do we deal with people's trauma when it shows up in a community setting. Um and so very, very curious to talk to uh, Dare and Tata here on their work. Um, my name is Tata. Um, thank you for having me. I'm from uh, uh, of, uh, Japanese lineage, which is a mixed race of indigenous and kind of settler people from the mainland of Asia, so-called Asia. So that happened a long while ago. I'm based out of uh, unceded coastal territories, so that's so-called uh, Vancouver, BC, and so-called Canada. So that's kind of like where I'm hailing from. Uh, yeah, uh, I heard this podcast is called Future Fossils, which is a, a contradiction or paradox. So that's cool. Uh, I had dreams of fossil fuels, um, so that's that's a good start, I think, for all this. Tata, do you want to um, just give a little bit of your background, like in the work? Oh, oh, yeah. Sorry, sorry, Dad. No, it's okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, isn't that enough? Um, yeah, I'm a developer and practitioner of what um, 
you know, me and a few other people call uh, cultural somatics. So that's kind of like a, what we call a meta somatic framework. Um, it's a meta modality. So it's not a one-on-one modality or even a group modality, but a kind of modality that's able to work with all various scales of beings. So that's um, beings as in like societies and beings as in a human being and beings as in maybe small as a cell, a cell in our body. So um, that's kind of how we conceive our work when we get really wild. And uh, yeah, I'm a pro- I, don't, I don't know. I don't feel like I need to give up too much more because you're probably going to dive into it and all the consequences of that idea are really, yeah, interesting. So Dare. Okay. Hi, I'm Dare, Dare Sohei. And um, some people listening on this podcast might have known me when I went by Darius with my birth name. And I know that I'm saying that because you know, had I stayed in the Bay Area a little bit longer, I probably would have known Naomi in person because we'd like share like a lot of the same uh, groups of friends from that area. So it's an interesting cyclical thing, sp- spiralic thing that's happening for me in this podcast. Um, uh, so um, what am I? Who am I? Um, primarily, I would say that I'm like a somatic uh experimental artist but it doesn't really cover it you know like i'm i do a lot of poetry and as a practice for the cultural somatic work that i've helped co-develop with tada and um my ancestors are uh from a lot of places so on my father's side we have uh indigenous taino from boriken aka puerto rico we have um you know Yoruban, West African, uh, people who are taken over as slaves to those colonies. And we also have, uh, sort of like exiled white Spanish people, <laughs> uh, who go to those places too. And so that's my father's lineage. And, um, my mother's lineages are, you know, immigrants from what you might consider France and Switzerland. And of course, Switzerland is in and of itself a kind of hybrid place that that was invented very recently in order to sort of like deal with political cultural somatic issues right and um so i'm i'm all of those and you know i do my best to listen to those ancestors in a real way and that's a lot of what my work has been about and my life has been about is about how do we actually integrate these messages that we are always getting from all sorts of places and all sorts of beings. And how do we do that in a way where we stay in our window of tolerance? So we're going to get into this a lot more, but my work is basically comes from somatic practices, dance, theater, massage, you know, Chinese medicine, Taoism, uh, things like that. And then it bridges into um, more and more indigenous ancestral kind of ways of knowing or ways of being, which actually allow for the enough space for all of these voices to live. And so we're not trying to flatten or cure or heal things as much as we're trying to actually be in an ecosystem. Um, so, uh, and I met Tata around three years ago and we've been working together ever since. And it's been such a joy and pleasure to help continue to clarify this model that is essentially like just trying to accurately map our our living reality rather than try to impose anything upon it thanks for having me yeah yeah um so i think where i'd like to start this so that we give people enough time enough runway i guess to get into some of the 
the more um, nuanced and applied dimensions here is first to talk about the sort of the ontology of cultural somatics and like what, what kind of world y'all are inhabiting and you know, how you, you know, how you see things, because there's a lot um, immediately resonant with me about the work that you're doing and the sort of um, claims that you're making about the, the so-called individual and the, the cultures that we participate in and the inclusion of animism in this conversation. And so however you want to unpack this or introduce uh, the sort of basics of this idea to people, I know you got like a glossary on the website, <laughs> but like, you know, like I'd like to, yeah, have, have you open this up for us? Yeah. So I think I can start off and Derek can get into the more specifics. So Maybe it's more like kind of like the social background for cultural somatics, because I think saying that me and Derek created it is like a disservice to the reality that one, there's other people who used the term before us, um, like by a few years. There's Resma Menachem who started using that term to describe their work independently of us. And we kind of like, oh, we're both using the same language. What do you know? Um, so that would be a disservice um, first. And then there's also people doing cultural somatic work, which aren't people who aren't calling it that, but that's essentially what they're doing. Right. So it's, it's like kind of like a dance and you're like, Oh, we're all doing kind of a similar style with similar things. What does this all mean? So when we're thinking about that, um, the basic gist probably is that there's been um, a tension between, let's say like the social justice world and the psychotherapy world for a long time. And, you know, the somatic psychotherapy world in particular, maybe even. So the tension would have been that, like, um, activists are burning out all the time, right? And because they don't any, you know, they're not, their discourse doesn't include the body and doesn't include the neurology, you know, the nervous system and its realities. So activists starting to need to in integrate that into their work to basically get away from the kind of toxic patterns within their own communities that comes from, right? Um, develops out of this kind of overactivation of the nervous system. And then on the other hand, there's been a broad critique of like Western psychotherapeutic modalities because essentially the healing power that in them is all resourced from like, you know, pre-colonial cultures essentially. So whatever they are, they may be African indigenous, they may be indigenous to Turtle Island, they may be um, indigenous to other parts of the world, but it's, you know, modern psychotherapy is like actually like a, an observed kind of compilation of those techniques with kind of like neuroscientific explanations. That's kind of like how or an understanding interpretation of it. Right. But of course those modalities and the practices from those um, communities, mostly of color, like are are healing resources of their own. They don't actually require <laughs> modern neuroscience to explain it for them to work, but it, it meets us where they are, where we are to have that. Right. So what happens there then is that, so both sides are kind of starting to grow near each other. And a lot of people have been bouncing back and forth. So a lot of people burn out of activism, become a therapist, and then like want to go back into activist world, but they don't know how to deal with the two. Or you have a lot of people who are like therapists, but then like decided to realize that they never thought about racism until like 2017 and now need to go into social justice world, but they're getting blindsided by the information. They don't know how to process it. So that's the background for cultural somatics to say that, in a sense, me and Dare both had that background in some kind of way. Probably not. I don't, I've never been like a super frontline activist, but, you know, I certainly started my kind of like therapeutic career trying to look up ways of, 
uh, politicizing therapy and, and art expressive arts therapy in politics. You know what I mean? Like it's been looking for that meshing. So um, yeah, we probably both come from that background. Um, I don't actually don't know how extensive Dara's organizing kind of resume is. So I don't think we ever talked about it. So I'm assuming very little or something. I yeah, wouldn't okay. call myself, I wouldn't call myself an organizer, but I did some things. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. 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 No, no, similar, similar. Yeah. So the way we've been conceiving of it is more than like, uh, so where does, you know, where does cultural somatics sit within all that? So some people would say different from us, to be honest, some people, uh, but for us, I think, um, Cultural somatics is essentially kind of like a, an alternative medicine in like kind of the derogatory way, you know, in the sense that Chinese medicine is an alternative medicine, quote unquote, like Nirvana is an alternative band, quote unquote, because they're not signed to Geffen at the time yet. You know what I mean? It's that kind of thing, but um, that it's an alternative to mainstream social justice discourse on how to deal with social issues in a way. That's one way to look at it. Or well-being issues. And well-being is individual and collective, right? And they don't conflict. They actually are fractals of each other, so they work together. And so the premise that we work with is that uh, cultures are bodies. It's very simple. So that means if you're actually like a um, herbalist or a Chinese medicine doctor or a somatic therapist and you work with people's bodies on a one-on-one level, you don't actually need to get distracted too much. You can actually... Take your skill set, but just scale it up and be very disciplined about that. Because everything you learn about trauma on an individual level in the body now is applicable to um, large-scale cultural change. And if you're an activist, you're probably going to detox a lot of stuff, to be honest. Because we start to, for example, like we talk about terms like privilege as dissociation. Like we don't talk about privilege as a material equity issue. It, we talk about it as an energetic issue and also an attachment issue and a neurological issue. And we call it dissociation. This is dissoci- cultural dissociation. It's how our culture protects certain people from processing certain ancestral trauma. That's all it is. And the effects of that are material, but the foundation is neurological. So we replace a lot of that language and eat. It's kind of like we're ingesting and digesting social justice theory in, into a new type of medicine. That will probably eventually, you know, we see it as being kind of like integrated, kind of allopathic and holistic kind of uh, strategy. You see it a lot now, I think, in kind of like integrated medicines, right? Like, you know, you see a lot of um, stuff now about like gut microbiomes and microbiomes, which is actually like, you know, extends off like Chinese medicine, other like indigenous medicines. So you see that a lot more in modern medicine now. And I think that's kind of like the trajectory that we're going to. It's like we're providing an alternative. We're starting to eat up the territory of the mimetic territory, right? The mimetic market space. We're trying to eat up of like these allopathic kind of measures to justice. And that eventually would mean the power relationship would change. And then we might get to a different integrated stage where we kind of have a balance of, um, yeah, both uh, past, present and future. And uh, yeah, maybe Derry, do you want to you have any, anything to extend on that? I mean, all of, it's really interesting to do these podcasts because you're trying to basically like fit encyclopedias of like associated networks into like a bite-sized chunk. And the reality is, is that like it does a disservice to the work to pretend that you can do that. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend that you can do that. What I'm going to do is say a bunch of names of a bunch of words and those words are all connected and you can go down the rabbit hole in each of those words. And so I would say animism somatics, attachment, neurology, 
all talking to each other at the same time in actually an integrated way. And then there's a navigation model, which we use to do it in a, to navigate in a good way, which is orientation, differentiation, integration. And that's a cycle. So you're constantly going orientation. Where am I in place and time? What's the dimensions? Then what are all the different beings that are here? That's differentiation. So you could say, Oh, my elbow is different than my wrist because you need to know that in order to have a good sense of your body. And this could be your body or this could be culture. Or this could be a situation or a relationship. So they're all fractals, right? But you orient to the present moment using your senses and then you differentiate and then you integrate, which is to say, what are the, what's the net effect of all of these forces at one time in my body rather than individually? And so you just keep doing that over and over in a spiral until you would hit something that you might call a threshold. That's neuro, that's neurology. So a threshold pattern is just like a heartbeat. It has a peak, a valley, and recovery. So we want to hit positive thresholds, but only the just right ones. Very sweet spot. It's very much like Goldilocks, right? You don't want to go over threshold. And if you go under threshold, you won't feel that good. But if you go over threshold, you won't feel that good either. So as you orient or as you encounter or as you navigate the path or the forest, right? You're trying to, to notice these little arousal and de-arousal, arousal and de-arousal, but also let the recovery happen so you're not just going like bing bong, bing bong, bing bong, up and down, peak and valley. What you're trying to do is go, oh, where's that plateau where I can actually integrate? Because after you differentiate, you're going to be like, oh, there's that being, that's a wave. There's that being, that's another wave. There's that being, that's another wave. There's that pain, that's another wave. There's that pain, that's another wave. Eventually, you have to come to the place where you go, I have enough differentiation for right now. Now I have to integrate and I have to recover. And then I, and in order to do that, it goes back to the beginning. You orient again, right? So it's a neurological model that is not discharge based. It's not about catharsis. It's about orientation and differentiation and integration, but mostly orientation and integration as the sort of hallmarks of what you're looking for. And it's actually very gentle. It's actually very, very gentle. And I'm going to like eat my shoe here, you know, from my mid twenties until now, essentially, but you know, a large part of my mid twenties, my early twenties, my mid thirties, I was an addict and I was a heavy user of many substances. And so I've done the heroic doses of so many things, but all throughout the time I was trying to pay attention to what was actually happening. But here's the problem. I kept going over threshold. And I didn't have that language to understand why I was getting a lot of benefit, but it wasn't sticking. I couldn't integrate it. It's because I kept going over threshold and I didn't have a model in which to continually integrate tiny pieces of the experience over time. The last thing that I want to say as just to sort of like, here's all the seeds in this garden that are growing is that. Let's say you navigate in this cyclical way with your threshold model, just right, Goldilocks sauce, positive, pleasure-based, everything. You then are actually what here's, so here's the rub. Healing is an indirect effect of distribution of force throughout a network. That's it. Healing is an indirect effect of distribution of force or pain or trauma throughout a network. 
So it's a distributed network. If you look at complex systems, we're trying to go from a hierarchical neurology network, which is a traumatized system. A traumatized neurology operates in a hierarchy. A non-traumatized or secure or healed or whatever you want to call it nervous system tends to operate in a more decentralized or distributed network kind of way. That's it. That's all. It's not moral. It's not moral. We're not talking about morality here. Zero morality. There are some biological analogs that you're reminding me of right now. Um, one of them is the concept of inflammation. So in the body, uh, some amount of inflammation is good and causes and spurs healing. Uh, and too much inflammation overwhelms, right? I'll just stop there. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's interesting. Uh, oops, I turned on my mic and I don't know what I'm going to say. But I actually <laughs> think it's also good to um, offer a little bit maybe of like the consciously of the people who kind of influence the work. So I don't know. Is that is that a lot of Steven stuff in terms of the orientation? Because I actually don't know where that yeah, came let me, from. Let me tell you, let me tell you some acknowledgements now. And so for anyone who really wants to oh, yeah. like put my notes to the grindstone and be like, you're a bad appropriator or whatever you want to do, just go to my website. It's bodyalteralcar.org <laughs> and there's an acknowledgements page. Okay. Yeah. So you can look at my ongoing prayer to all of the people who have helped me continually. Right. And so I might not name all those people now because there's just too many but I might name chunks of people. And so one of my main teachers is a man named Stephen Hoskinson, who runs an organization called Organic Intelligence, where a lot of this orientation threshold modeling stuff comes through. And a particularly, in my opinion, it's particularly accurate. And I'm vetting that accuracy because it doesn't destroy my spirit model or my cosmological spiritual model of the universe. It actually makes it work better. This is how I know that something works. It's like, can I still talk to spirits and not be messed up? That's my like baseline because I don't actually really care about eschewing to a model, a colonial model, just because it sounds right or it feels right. For me, there's, it's all pragmatic. Can I still have new and exciting and possibly scary relationships with the world and the beings in it? Can I continue to do that and not collapse and not go over threshold? Whether you call it a different thing, whether you call it flooding or overwhelm, or whether you call it like depression or suicidality, I'm not like, whatever you call it, it's still this, is it too much or is it too little? Can I actually have a real encounter with another being in which I have to not know what's going to happen next? And can I do that better? And and it's interesting because I feel like... Yeah, so far, I feel like Stephen's work has been a positive influence. <laughs> you know, we, we, we constantly vet that. But the stakes of why, I don't know, that kind of thing is important, which is probably the main, main conversation here is like, when you actually look at social movements, the, the key issue is not about what people are thinking. And this is the big mistake that we make. Like the key issue about revolutions and changes in thinking is actually emotional amplitude and how emotional release happens and whether in our probably hypothesis, whether we are using a orientation model or are we using like a discharge and release model? Does that make sense? Like, so you can have, you can think all the right thoughts, you know, like, um, do you remember the El Paso and shooters? No, it was El Paso and El Paso and Dayton. It was a weekend where there's two shooters are both white men who are kind of like lonely people that played a lot of video games. Um, you know, maybe some of you are listening out there jokes. <laughs> you know, I've been one, uh, but you know, not white, but I've been a lonely video game guy. But one, so one thing was interesting was so one person was like a Bernie supporter, 
and the other person was an alt-right accelerationist, so-called. So they both had different ideologies, apparently. So they both had different ideas in their head, concepts in their head. But nothing of their behavior really was different. They shot up a bunch of people of color in like a in public space. And so people, we keep getting it wrong that we think if we think the right things, we're going to actually somehow do a better job of it. And it's actually completely untrue. What matters is actually how people behave on a very neurological level. So what kind of emotional amplitude are they experiencing? What is their model for healing and change? That is actually what changes the outcome. And I think it's a particularly important thing for us to recognize right now because we're in a threshold of upheaval, obviously. And there's this kind of war, mimetic war, about how we go through that upheaval process. You know, there's multiple different strains. And in some sense, we are we are offering one of them, which is like, oh, no, like, the culture is a body. So if you go through, you know, you can go through healing in a way that's re-traumatizing to your body. So if you do that with the cultural body, you're going to end up with a dictatorship. Like we've seen it many times through history. You know, and it's not about peaceful protest and violence. It's not about any of that. It's actually about amplitude and our ability to um, manage. And so as a microcosm, we see that like whenever there's too much emotion, too much peak experience within a community, you see that it turns into despotism. And it doesn't matter. It does not matter if you're anti-fascist. doesn't matter if you're alt-right. doesn't matter if you're churchgoers. doesn't matter if you're like um, video gamers. doesn't matter if you're Twitter users. doesn't matter if you're like, um, you know, democratic, you know, socialist progressives. No, you know, none of that matters. Like none of that matters. If you are going through too much emotional amplitude, you're, um, and you're not able to manage it within change, within uh, a collective kind of nervous systems um, threshold and the ability to process material, you end up with authoritarianism and you, and you see this in every community and does not matter. So I think those are the kind of stakes that we're really looking at and inflammation. You end up with inflammation. <laughs> I have, I have a somewhat pressing question to ask you to, that applies exactly what you're talking about, which is that, I wonder what is the responsibility of community leaders when they know that they're dealing with the uh, high emotional, you know, people who are basically over their threshold almost all the time. And whether that's because of wider cultural trends or because of th something that's happening right in front of you between people in your community, how can I act on behalf of the community because I see people getting damaged by people projecting their traumas? And of course, it is presumptuous of me to say you're projecting your traumas at the same time. But what? No, <laughs> I was going to say it is not. Is it? <laughs> no, no, it's, it's presumptuous to say what trauma, probably. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> but it's the sense that I go around in circles, kind of watching things unfold and going, I need to take action because I know this is bad for the health of my community to allow people to project their trauma even if it's justified even if their anger at being in a some kind of minority place of being oppressed it is still bad for the long-term health of the community to for other people to be you know continuously you know affected by certain people i don't know what to do <laughs> and there's a lot of things is like um you know uh Man, there's a lot of a lot of ways you can go about this, right, there. It's about narcissism. It's about. I think I think the number one thing for people who don't want to do that is like, don't become a cult leader. 
like don't don't absorb the emotional energy don't don't become self-important because you have so much emotional attention coming towards you which essentially means people are projecting on top of you you know what i mean like our communities are driven by like daddy and mommy issues like really like we see our parents and community leaders and we're like we don't we don't tell them we don't tell them like we see daddy or mommy but we're doing it or you know of course it's, you know non-binary too right like you know please I definitely, you know, you know what I'm saying. As a mom, I'm fine. fine. Right. Yeah. yeah. But you know what I mean? Caretaker issues. So like, like, here's the thing. Like, I've been in racial justice spaces where I just watch people get possessed by ghosts in real time. And I don't do anything about it because I can't. But what I can do is I can actually look at each ghost and say, I see you and all of your ancestors pain. And I actually, it wasn't okay. But also what you're doing right now is not okay. Like there's a way you can hold that in your body when you've done enough of your own work around it, right? It's not a theory when you actually feel it happening in your guts. It's still a theory when you're thinking it through in an abstract graph in your mind. And that's fine because eventually though, here's the thing. Projection is an automatic defense mechanism for people who have undigested traumatic material, but have no clue how to digest it. So projection is happening all the time with everyone a little bit. If I go out to the park, let's say, watch this is really simple. If I go out to the park and I see someone jogging and they're really in shape, they're really fit. And I get jealous of them for a moment. I'm projecting onto them something that I need to take a little more time to just be with and integrate a little bit longer. Oh, why am I jealous? Like, oh, what's that say about me and my relationship with my body and the world? And actually like constantly just doing that little by little is how we could deal with our projections when they come up for us. But if you're in a leadership position, you really need to know that nervous system lingo because you got to be doing it literally constantly. Like I'm trying to do it constantly on this call in a certain way. And I know that Tata has their own way of like constantly monitoring their own ecosystem effects, hopefully. And we're not like accurate a hundred percent of the time, but our, our, our internal eye is on that a little bit all the time. And one of the easiest probably ways to understand that, you know, when you said like, it's presumptuous to think that they're projecting their trauma and it's actually not, it's actually, you can actually pretty easily tell when you're doing it and when other people are doing it. And um, because Dara was mentioning the whole differentiation piece and like, who does this feeling belong to? So as beings, we actually experience emotions of, I don't know. I went through a thing this morning. I was like, Oh, I, I experienced the trauma of plankton. That's unprocessed. You know what I mean? Like I have trauma in my body from being a dinosaur for fuck's sake. Like that's real. I have trauma from becoming a, a material object and leaving the information sphere. Like that is real trauma, actually. That or it's almost at that point, it's almost like I'm so elemental. It's not trauma, but our body still registers that trauma. Like it really does. Like we, there is actual pain, separation, anxiety from becoming a material being, right. or thoughts becoming thoughts, 
and not thought ether, you know, like this is, so that's how deep it can go. And it can be as granular as intergenerational and it can be granular as like, you know, prehistoric, like, you know, cave people, like it can be granular as plankton and microbes or planets. And it could be in huge scale or it can be like the trauma of like humanity to the planet, to my community, to my family, right? All those are available. And so differentiation is understanding that, oh, whose thoughts am I thinking? Whose feelings am I feeling? And whose sensations am I sensing? And pretty much the golden rule is if you're going over threshold, so you're having a traumatic reaction or somebody is not able to be in their kind of like what um, is called a window of tolerance. So like a band with their nervous system where they can actually have an open dialogue and communicate. They're experiencing the emotions of others in a way that's surpassing their threshold. Like it's very simple. Like the, it, it just, you just when and that's why I said, you don't know which trauma you don't know which trauma it is. Like when a, a police officer shoots a black man, we don't know which trauma we call it white supremacy, but it, you know, police officer shows up with their childhood. So any and beating they got from their parents relationship, like, you know, like they got in a fight with their partner in the morning, they bring you that all of that's in the mix. And then the plankton, you know, like, you know, all that trauma is there and we don't know which trauma pulls the trigger, right? So the thing that we need, like, all we can say is presumable. We're presuming that it's there. But the technique is to actually start to be able to go, like, which is for you? Does this help you? Do you think about plankton? Does something rest in you and you feel better? When you think about God and your separation from God, you start going, like, oh, okay. Like, you know, does that make you feel better? And when you start hitting the right points, people start to change. Like this, And this is kind of like the science of it. It's, it's actually kind of science. Um, and then the related, there's this whole thing that, like, Oh man, maybe it, we won't get into that, but uh, maybe it's fun. You know, like, um, like even fossils, right? Have trauma, right? And that's why they're becoming fuel and burning up the planet, right? We think that's about us and our culture, but we don't think about, oh, maybe it's actually the fossils that were like, fuck y'all, we're angry. We're going to turn into black smoke, right? We don't, we don't ever think about maybe the oil has its own agenda and those are all dead people, basically. I have so I have often thought that the oil had its own agenda. Yeah, the oil, yeah, because you know the way we, the way me and Derek boy we talked about it is kind of like we stopped grieving our ancestors. The oil got pissed off because we're like, well, we're dead and we're still here, and you're not taking care of us and our traumas. So, like, fuck you. We're gonna start coming out of the ground now. Just the kind of how like how dandelions like kind of like soak up poison. I think humans are kind of like that too. When we had to maybe need to get a little bit aware of that, but. You know, all that stuff is in the mix. And so it actually can be a very precise science even, right? You know what I mean? Um, it's like a precise, non-precise science about like when, when you hit the, when you hit the button of somebody and you get the right button, they, that something changes in them. They're like, Oh, you know, and they disarm and then it keeps, it keeps disarming. It's very real. So this is not evidence based, but it's experience based. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know, dude, do you want to add anything? Or Michael, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, your hat's not so like. Well, I mean, I just, I'm glad that you brought all of that up because one of the things that we're constantly challenging on this show is the delineations of personhood that we've, you know, we've kind of taken for granted in the modern world. I mean, we meaning, you know, people living in sort of the so-called age of enlightenment and it's, it's, uh, diaspora of exiled, you know, uh, spiritual rootless folks. I, I've been really inspired by some of the writings of uh, Timothy Morton, the object-oriented ontologist, 
he talks about hyper objects, this notion that, you know, a phenomenon like radiation or global warming is so big that you can't see it at once. And yet it is a thing, you know, and that hyper objects, uh, because of their distributed nature, at least relative to where we're standing, they exert an agency on us that's invisible to us. You know, like Marshall McLuhan talking about a media ecology, you know, like a living within the electronic surround, um, that they extend in some sense, uh, not just temp- like spatially, but temporally beyond us. And so climate change is something that is happening, uh, to us in our future and affecting us now. And so it challenges time and space it challenges the um you know the idea that only humans are like agentic actors in this world that we have um and in the worlds you know he gets into how you know a world is sort of like a structure containing anyway so reading your work both of you i was reminded of this talk i gave of back at an Evolver Spore in San Francisco in like 2010, where I was talking about how one day if we can read everyone's brain patterns, like if it just becomes like consumer grade, you just like wear like a bandana to sleep at night and it can, you know, map your particular neural firing and all this stuff, then we could start creating, you know, at this point, maybe people are like professional dreamers. You're just streaming your dreams to other people and and you're getting... Uh, this is like a different sort of universal basic income where everyone just has an audience for their dreams. Um, you're getting, you know, paid for, uh, proof of work on the blockchain or something by dreaming. And at any rate, the, uh, the idea being that you could see who, who all is having the same dreams at the same time. You know, like you could see, oh, the blue goddess has shown up. Like I had a friend who did this with, um, he led 123 first time DMT ceremonies in one year. And his, his request was that every one of them make a thorough trip report. And then he started correlating the trip reports and finding this whole field guide of entities that were consistent across people's experiences. And, you know, I was, I was like, Oh my gosh, I've had, I have for sure had dreams that involved a friend I rarely see. And I called her up the next day and I said, Hey, you were, we were standing here and you were wearing this in the dream. And she knew exactly what I was talking about. And it shared that dream with me the night before. And, um, so, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to like drag this relentlessly back into the theoretical, but I, I do think that like there, you say it's not evidence-based, but I do think that the, the, the burden of proof is really on the people who say that this is not the following statement is not the case, which is that ideological systems, quote unquote, are actually living entities that have a concrete material embodiment in the neural, neural and somatic patterns of the people sort of devoting themselves as the, the communion wafer to that that sort of transubstantiated thing. I don't know if that's like the best way to talk about it, but I'm just like laying this all out because like you said, I think that rather than this being about getting the right facts out on the table, you know, George Lakoff has written a lot about that in terms of like the failure of Democrats over the last 20 years, thinking that like just ideas are going to change somebody's mind that 
we don't really start to understand the problems we're facing unless we start to see our institutions and our belief systems and our cultural heritages and all of these things as as like beings in their own right. And then like, how do we relate to these beings? And then that's part of what is being revived in the internet world in part because there's something about coming online, the human species that is like a psychedelic experience in the way it's dissolving the boundaries between different parts of the brain, the increase of functional connectivity between different brain regions that are normally inhibiting one another. And so part of that is the constant exposure to traumatic events and to the suffering of everyone else in the world. And, you know, we're talking about like crossing the, like, passing that threshold that, you know, we're no longer living in groups that are, 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 you know, in certain ways, things have gotten sort of materially easier for many people. But even at the very beginning of human history, like I had a conversation with Lawrence Gonzalez recently for another show. Uh, he wrote a, a book about trauma and surviving survival. And one of the things he talked about was the incidence of these tribes, uh, like ancient, ancient um, uh, paleoanthropological sites where they were digging up uh, like a community of 150 people had made a million knives and that there was this thing about repetitive goal directed behavior in the way that we are able to regulate our neural acti- our nervous system activity, like stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system that results in, in it's sort of like best manifestations. And this is this, I'm calling the shot ahead of time. I really want to talk to you both uh, about dance um, at some point, but like this idea that, goal-directed, repetitive path behaviors that activate a seeking pathway in the brain, which, which inhibits the rage pathway in the brain are behind possibly all of our tool making and our, the origins of religion and religious ritual. And that, you know, when we're asking about like, uh, before TV, why do we have like pyramids and, you know, like all these amazing megalithic sites? And like, why did the tribe make a million knives that it's prayer and what in some cases can become like obsessive habits? Uh, like you, you mentioned, Dare, you mentioned addiction as like, uh, you know, this is a, a, I think a crystalline example of this. So I don't know. That's just a lot, but I feel like, I feel like one that, you know, like the trauma was ubiquitous among whatever we're we're now going to call humans from the beginning. And it's obviously not merely a human issue, but like there is something about our reflexivity that aggravates this condition for us as humans. And then, yeah, that's all. I'll end it there. So, yeah, no, that's great. Like, I think a lot of this is Jerry's work, um, wheelhouse. So I'm going to pass it over really quickly, but I think I just had one little comment around evidence-based versus experience-based. And I think one of the reasons why I actually think it's kind of a good thing to be not as evidence-based. And th- there's there's some aspects of it that it's about how trauma works. And one of the ways we re-traumatize ourselves is by trying to always know what happened. This is actually a very fundamental thing in developmental trauma. There's traumas that are before our, our internal recorded history, so inter- before our memory, and trying to find out exactly what is happening. Um, can be actually traumatizing to us as fixation and obsession. So it's actually very pragmatic. Um, so I think there's something about that um, 
And so there's kind of like maybe hybrid ways of knowing that are not experiential or evidence-based purely. And I think this is what I mean when we talk about why we look at things cultural somatically as opposed to just ideas. It's like, oh, how how am I thinking about this might traumatize me. And that might not be a good way to look at our anthropology. So that's kind of like, you know, and on the subject of like what you're talking about, like these networks, you know, for example, you can talk about somebody like Ted Bundy. He had visions of like, you know, like, like, yeah, being people being killed in his brain and they didn't come from anywhere in his life, but what did our society do? Um, and, you know, then murder and torture women as witches for like 200 years. Like our governments did that on a cultural scale and institutional scale all throughout the Western world. Right. So guess what Ted's dreaming? You know what I mean? So it's obvious to me, like, I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, I, I hear a lot of what you're saying too, but, and then, then there's the other side of also not necessarily needing to go to the evidence place place, I think is like a new thing that we're looking at because that itself can be a traumatic response um, that can overload us. And that's kind of the stuff that, yeah, me and Dara are probably exploring and rethinking about. And it's probably a great time to turn it over to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, thanks for thanks for all of these words that hope, you know, like, I'm always like, hey, whoever's listening, you should like pause now and like go take a walk outside and then come back to the recording, um, to be honest. Um, so really what it is that, that we are saying, and I'm just trying to, you know, dream a little bit. Cause I, cause the idea of like busking in the dream world, that actually does happen already. So there doesn't have to be a magical future in which people get paid to like dream for other people. That's part of human nature. That's what's happening already. And when, when we get, insights into that. So when our conscious mind actually catches up to the thing that's actually always been happening, that's when we consider that we have wisdom or enlightenment. Like somehow this tiny version of this thing that can talk to other humans about things, like this very small part of my selfhood wakes up to itself a little bit more and goes, oh my goodness, it's always been like this. It's a daisy chain all the way back, right? Like those were things that always happened to people. There always needed to be a stewardship through these developmental stages because that's all it is. It's just a developmental stage. It's not like magical in the sense of people being special or talented. There's nothing to do with that. You might be the knife maker and I might be the drummer, but we're both devoted to this weird rhythmic channeling thing that has to keep happening and we don't really know why. But it really is the, it's the, it's the juice of our lives, right? It's this thing, right? So is that an addiction or is that inspiration? We have to really think about possession, addiction, inspiration as sort of like threshold and processing issues. Like it's not actually like, oh, the devil came into you. What really probably happened was a person had a Kundalini experience in which they woke up to the energy in their spinal cord, which was connected to the earth. So earth spirit coming through the body, like all indigenous cultures know this. I mean, it's like so basic for other cultures. For us, it's super like, huh, is this possible? And like for other cultures, they're like, no, your spirit's in your belly. What are you talking about? Like you're not thinking with your brain, you're thinking with your belly. It's like, oh, totally different like cosmology, right? Than the Western colonized mind, which is like, I think therefore I am. It's like, instead of I sense, therefore I might be, you know what I mean? Like. That's much healthier. 
Like I'm, I'm walking through this forest rhythmically. I'm seeking. I don't know. Am I seeking the horizon? Am I seeking food? Am I seeking friendship? Am I seeking water? And along the way, I get into a trance because the rhythm is a rhythm is a rhythm and we all love rhythm. And suddenly the forest tells me where to go. And I just know that because my legs take me there and I don't have to decide upon it. It just happens. So it's, it's not as if more trauma is happening more now because there's more people, because that's like a fractal linear, like limitation model, right? Like there's only enough uh, room in the, in the simulation for things. It's like, no, there's infinite room in the simulation. There might not be infinite material space on earth, but that's not the same thing as what I'm talking about here. Um, so there's always been a crowded room is what I'm saying. There's always been a crowded room of ghosts, always. It's never not been a crowded room. So the principles that our ancestors used to digest this reality, this fact, worked because they worked because it's always been a crowded room. So if we're experiencing that crowded room phenomenon and we're feeling freaked out about it, we need to find the things that our ancestors already understood because they were born into a crowded room. And from the minute they were born, people were managing that shit and learning how to titrate it and learning how to go through initiations and like, okay, so once a year, you're going to fast for a week and go on the mountain because if you don't, then next winter, you're going to explode and kill people. That's the stuff people learned. They knew that. They fucking knew that shit. We're just remembering it. We're just remembering it from this like fuzzy television set in our mind because the thing that we needed to practice, we're only picking up as adults, whereas children are kind of doing it and you have to like catch the momentum and shape it in a certain way. Oh yes, invisible friends. Great. Let's go to the altar, darling, and say thank you. Because if we don't fucking say thank you, they might take your ass over in the night. And you might become someone we don't really want to hang around with. But we love you. Let's say thank you to the nice spirits talking to you, honey. Like, this is not, this is not superstition. This is fucking realistic. This is like realistic. You're in a cabin in the woods somewhere and animals can hear your thoughts. And what do you do about that? You have to figure it out. You have to figure it out. And our ancestors did figure it out. And I hope we can refigure it out, basically. I want to add on to what you just said. Um, I went to the Pergamon Museum a few years ago in Berlin, and they have an extensive exhibit on the Assyrians. And the Assyrian uh, tomb building tradition was they didn't actually believe that people fully died when they died. They believed that they needed to to um, have progressively lower tombs going down into the ground. And that they would move the remains every by year by year by year, and they would keep feeding and watering and bringing bringing the the not quite dead person things that they might like in life. And I was standing there trying to make sense of that. And up to that point, this is I think 2018 in the summer. Up to that point, I don't know whether I'd considered any of the things that you just said there. Um, and I just had a moment of realizing, oh, they they realized that the ancestors really aren't dead. And they came up with uh, a somatic tradition whereby people had to go and remind themselves that the ancestors are still here. And you could bury them progressively over time, right? 
but you had to titrate in a sense that burial back into society so that's like a yeah transitional mechanism right and um i think one way to really understand this stuff is this is all like um one of the people who is influential for me was this guy called Dr. Tomabechi, so T-O-M-A-B-E-C-H-I. He's kind of like a a character. He's a Japanese character. He's a cognitive scientist, self-proclaimed Qigong master, a little bit of a sketchy person, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I don't, he's never going to watch this, so it doesn't really matter. But he's a little bit of, I don't know, he's a little bit like Tony Robbins, I would say. Um, like he, you know, he has really expensive coaching programs and stuff like that. So kind of like, eh. but there's some things that he talked about really interesting um, in the relationship between hypnosis and uh, hypnosis and magic and cognitive science. Right. And his basic thing that he said, thoughts are things. He didn't say thoughts are things are beings though, but he just kind of said thoughts are real things. Thoughts are real things that exist in an information sphere. And hypnosis is the way we um, affect the information world. And the real world, so-called, the dense world, is just a denser version of information. So where a subset of the infosphere is this dense sphere that we all exist in. But the infosphere is really what cultural somatics deals in. That's where the cultural nervous system lives in. Jung's collective unconscious is there, you know what I mean? Marshall Cluin's the medium that's thinking is there, the hyperobject is, that's where it is, right? Sheldrake's morphogenetic fields is there. All yeah, of it's yeah, yeah. there. Right. Yeah, all of it's... The Akashic the records, whatever you want to call it, right? <laughs> are, they, are they there? Yeah, in this space, the, this like this like constant information space. It's like the library that has all the books in Sandman. Like you are, right, right, right. You know, like you yeah. go to Sandman, there's the library of all the books that haven't been written yet or something, and you're like, what? It's like, yeah, they're right there. <laughs> right, right. So that's in the information sphere, infosphere. I think that's kind of what he calls it. And that might be a cognitive science term. Where is it going, this... The ancestors. Oh, okay. So what, what hypnosis and ritual is? Because hypnosis, ritual, magic, qigong, therapy, it's all the same shit. But what happens is when humans experience ideas as so real, it shifts the information sphere is kind of what he said. And I was like, ah, oh, okay. That I, I, that I can buy. So let's say like, um, you believe like, okay. So material objects and ritual make your sense of the information sphere more real. It ties it into a tangible thing and allows you to move things that's happening in the information sphere. That's how it works. So it's not that the ancestors are going to actually eat shit if you go to their tomb every year, but the belief that it happens allows you to actually intervene in the info sphere. So that's what ritual is about. It creates that infosphere connection and you're using three-dimensional tangible objects as well as your body which is tangible to mitigate into the infosphere that is the principle of magic right and and he basically said yes there's this principle of magic but it also the dense world is dense information so it has a bit of resistance so and other people are casting other magic right so you might be casting anti-capitalist magic but the capitalists are casting capitalist magic all the time because we're surrounded by hypnosis of capitalism through media and everything so there's this friction mimetic friction that's created and that's kind of like the wars that we see um but that's his kind of idea and cultural somatics takes that on a lot of that and from my my side of the lineage 
or the contribution. But like when it combined with Derek's work, it became like, oh, like all thing, all things are information, and all inf- things are beings. All informations are beings, and all inf- information actually has nervous systems, and that's kind of like more behave like they do, and that kind of where. It, that's kind of where like it exploded, if that makes sense. Like that that whole map exploded out uh, from that place. Yeah, it was about um, a few weeks ago that I found myself drawn to using the word egregore like every single day, and. I have friends, even my partner asked me yesterday, like, can you explain to me again what is an egregore? It's going to be this podcast that I direct people to. Uh, and I had a friend pop out of nowhere. I, I posted something on Facebook to the tune of, um, I think that Buddhism is an egregore that knows it's an egregore and hopes that you find out. Uh, and somebody pops into my DMs and said, where did you pick up this word? Uh, I seem to be seeing it everywhere now. And I'm like, I have no idea. But it seems to be super useful right now. Egregore is a meme that wants you to know <laughs> that everything else is a meme and get wake the fuck up, basically. <laughs> it's like the god of yeah. the god of memes. It like looks at itself in the mirror all day and is like, "Look, I'm looking at myself in the mirror. Isn't it so cool to know that you exist?" <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean that that is what. What? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's all good shit. It's yeah. all in the matrix, I guess. Well, well, you see, egregore is really like this European high ceremonial magic term for any other term that any other culture would have created about the same damn amazing, brilliant reality that we live in if you're actually trying to pay attention. And you're not trying to say, this thing that happened to me has no explanation. You actually go, well, what's actually the most best explanation for the thing that happens to me? Um in and, and you, you have to understand that most of this wisdom that we're start trying to remember, trying to source from, are from cultures that had secure attachment to non-human forces. And if we don't, which is really hard for us to have actual secure attachment to like the earth, to the land, to a lake, right? To like livestock. It's really hard for, for us as a culture or, you know, culture to have these secure attachments that our ancestors did so that when they talked, there was an inbuilt definition system. When they said like egregore, whatever they said, you know, tulpa, whatever, they, they had an inborn sense of like, when I'm saying this word, I know you're, you believe that the God and the earth mother are the same thing or something like that, right? Like they're like, I know that the person I'm talking to knows that. It's like the ontology of the word God or spirit. Right. Really, right? There's a built-in cultural somatic knowing or beinghood or embodiment or posture, whatever you want to call it, that sort of has this information built in as a prerequisite. We don't have that, so we actually have to go and build the map of the prerequisites, too, at the same time, because we're like, oh, all the things we needed to be doing for maintenance and all the things that we needed to learn in order to just do it for maintenance. This is the moment we're at. And so egregore in this moment, I think, expands our mind to the right size to be able to understand the task that's ahead of us. Right. It, it's also like anti-conspirituality, right? Yeah. Because Derhad is brilliant. You know, that is that conspirituality is what happens when people don't understand egregores and turn shit into sci-fi and fantasy novels. Yeah. 
that was like your explanation. Right? I think that's really brilliant because it's part of the explanation. It's like, it's like, cause here's the thing. There's not that much difference between like science fiction, fabulism and like animism, but animism kind of has a point, which is not to dissociate, but like science fiction, actually its point is kind of to dissociate a little bit because there's no secure attachment there. They're sort of presupposing that the person who wandered into this book or this information field is also an orphan. Right? Because that's the presupposed somatic posture. You're an orphan too, and I wrote this book for other orphans. And we're trying to find home, but we have no idea how, and this is part of how I'm trying to find home. Do you understand? Do you actually see me? I need to know that you see me. And so it's very beautiful, right? There's a duende in here. There's a passion here to be seen by another in a real way. But we've outsourced or offsourced that in a way that's not helpful because if everyone is insecure and floating around like balloons in the atmosphere, each balloon can't really pretend to be the mother of another balloon. It doesn't work that way. We need models. And so the earth as the model for the mother, which then the mother would model back to the child in a constant net of understanding and looking backwards so that not only is the distribution amongst the caregiving of a child in the physical village, as in other children raise the child, other aunts and uncles raise the child, there's a distribution there, but there's also a distribution back in time to all those dead ancestors and back beyond that to whatever caused them to be birthed. And if a mother knows that, then they have something that I would consider to be secure attachment to death, which would be like the actual death, not some weird science fiction egregore of death, but the actual death of which is like black soil, like really black soil. Like that's the, that's like a representation of death in the physical world is the really dense black soil, right? Hey, hey Dare, I was wondering. So on that note of science fiction, yeah. Like you like comic books. I oh, like I love anime, comic books. Yeah. But when when we're reading that, we're not like, oh, they're real. But so curious. But right. I mean, you're like, wait, no, no, no. Hey, there's like nuance here. No, no, but, no. But this the proposition is that like you know the mythologies we learn about indigenous peoples of the world, like Greek mythology and all this other stuff. Suppose the animist mythologies. Do you think that's already at a point where culture is already in science fiction? Possibly. Possibly a little bit, you know what I mean? Like the culture's already gone towards science fiction a bit already. And and they've lost their connection to the grounded animism. That was probably there a little few generations before. Right. Because, because if you track how linguistic works sort of like neurodevelopmentally among cultures, right. You understand that the true animism is always in the lay person oral tradition. It's a lay person oral tradition, which is, and you can still see this sometimes. Remember that documentary you sent me of the Roots of Rhythm, Tata? Yeah, 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 yeah. So in the Roots of Rhythm, there's like these old, and I don't have the words, I didn't memorize the words, but there's these old improvised singing traditions that men do in these um, indigenous Spanish cultures where they sort of just channel a living mythology like right out of their mouths where there's music playing right like they're just doing it and there's a kind of set like the blues it's like there's always a few repeated rhythms that everyone knows and they hear it every time so there's a like a code in there about who we are as a people 
the people who lost the world or something, or the people who ran away from the 14th river, whatever it is, there's like these little codes in there to the right audience. We are the people that, but then in the middle of those, there's room for something a little bit new. Like, and my child reached for the stars. That might not be something anyone in that culture has ever heard, but because I'm improvising in this moment, I can tie the past, which is true, what we believe together, into something that might not yet be possible for me to believe for myself. And this is very, very and important. It's very important, right? And then that's kind of like a living animist yes. kind of It's thing. happening <laughs> in the moment. It's happening in the spoken right. word. And usually the only person who can remember it is the person who it also inspired like a virus. And then yeah. you remember it together. And then maybe 200 years later, someone writes it down in a poem that then becomes translated and mistranslated over time. But already so, it's kind of mistranslated. Right? So my thoughts are, right, like that same, you know, that difference between that kind of text-based animist kind of mythology and what you're talking about there is like the difference between like, you know, what we have taught people talking about reptilian lizards running the world and all that shit that's happening right now because people are tripping out hard. People are tripping out hard. Like, that's the shit that our descendants are going to read and be like, oh, so our ancestors believe that reptilian lizards ran the world. But that's probably not, that's what we might be doing with the Greek mythologies, too, and going like, hmm, what an interesting society. What are their values? Whereas an actual maybe lived animism is more like, you know, we and Dare discussed this with somebody, discussed this with somebody else on Instagram too. I think Kola did too. And, you know, it's like, so maybe the lizards are actually just a metaphor, you know, just an egregore of people's, you know, lizard brains. You know what I mean? Like it's like sociopathy. It's like just, that's all it is. But egregores are real, right? Because none of the conspiratorial, the conspiratorial, conspirituality people they never talk about egregores because that would destroy their whole premise right <laughs> they're like fuck no like you know no the lizard's not egregore it's a real lizard it says uh, right you know like trump is like a lizard or, or maybe trump's not the lizard and trump's iron man i don't know what the fuck <laughs> is believed but if if they if they realize the egregores are real then the, that whole mythology crumbles because there's an alternative that's actually viable. Is that no? There's no reptiles. There's egregores though, and they're formless and they're fucking with us hundred percent. But they're, it's not. It's not. It's not like. It's not science fiction. Well, if they believed but, yeah. egregores were real, wouldn't that validate their their worldview? Oh no! Because then the lizard becomes an egregore, not like the reptilian is like an, a reptilian egregore, which is. I don't know. That seems Formal. like a a minor shift. Well, it is a minor shift. It might be. I mean, I don't know. Was, I feel like it's it's like one pathway up. I think it is was, a minor shift, but I think it's big. Yeah. I'm so sorry. There was there was uh, back in like 2008. My I had a friend who was deep in like the above top secret forums, and for like six months there was a Q and A going on with this actor in the forums going by hidden hand who claimed to be a member of the Illuminati and was explaining their inner workings to everyone else in the fora in this like very, very long protracted, like, you know, uh, kind of like AMA forum style thing. And one of the things that hidden hand was talking about was about the Gnosticism of the Illuminati and their like purported trans morality and how the everything that they were doing, like the people that we consider evil 
are, you know, spirits that have come down to earth in service to help us like liberate ourselves from the eggshell of this world. And so there is the sense, like if you're talking about this as like projection as a, as a, as a coping mechanism, you know, that the, um, that piece of it is projected onto the other team. You know, this idea that the, the egregore piece is like, Oh, that's what they believe. You know, because there's this, that, that inborn fear of the magical traditions and so on. That's, I, I think, also part of this. Um, oh, yeah, 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 I, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. And the, the thing is, like, the science fiction part is that people make that a big, oh my God, there's these spirits that are coming down from other planets. Holy shit. And it's like, no, it's kind of more like you dated a really horrible narcissistic person. And that was for you to learn that you don't date your mother. That's it. There's like nothing beyond that. It's like so much more matter of fact. It's like, yeah, shitty people enter your life sometimes. So you learn these hard lessons. And maybe, you know, maybe Donald Trump is a shitty person entering into our life. So we can learn a lesson. It doesn't mean they're like he was put in place by space aliens. That's the dissociation. That's the sci-fi. You know what I mean? That, that That's the, and that's, it's a very small switch. But it's a small switch. It's, it's different to say like, oh, my ex-partner was an alien from outer space who was sent from another planet to disrupt my life. And it was for the better of me. And, um, you know, they had three eyeballs. It's different from saying like, oh, they grew up there. You know, they had some childhood trauma, stuff, ancestral trauma, and it was a really bad pairing. And, you know, I'm getting therapy now. It's the same, you know, it's like the same idea, but there is like a dissociation difference I think is just really important. Right. The locus of control um, is completely different in those two different. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And there's an internal responsibility on the one, right? Whereas on the other, it's like externalized and projected and dissociated. Whereas like when you're saying, Oh, they showed up like a spirit showed up through a relationship for me to integrate the certain thing. It's you're a lot more self-responsible. Like psychically, you know, psychologically. Yeah. So Marianne Williamson (laughs) said something really interesting on a debate stage a a year ago, or i.e. hundreds of years ago, both in the four before times. Um, uh, She was asked or maybe she was, you know, she felt compelled to weigh in on why Donald Trump was elected. And she said a horrible, horrible, no good, very bad thing, which is he said that make he said, make America great again. And it was a good slogan. Uh, and, uh, the egregore of the, of the Democrats on the left did not like that one one bit. Um, because the, because what we're meant to believe, I consider myself part of the left, is that Donald Trump was elected by white supremacy. And Marianne Williamson had the guts to say, actually, it might be a bit more complicated than that. It's not just the space aliens of white supremacy. I'm not saying it's not. <laughs> yeah, so that's interesting because um, uh, I was part of the Yang Gang, still am. So Andrew Yang and then like Marianne Williamson, a few other people are kind of collided together, right? It's kind of mimetic figures, I think too, like in some ways. And um, there's this guy, Ryan Tanaka. I don't know if you know him. He makes these videos about system theory versus parts thinking as a way to look at electoral politics. So he kind of put like, so system thinkers in this whole system of electoral politics is let's say like Marianne and Andrew Yang. 
they're both approached a little bit differently. And Marianne's kind of like that Christian mystic, woo woo, you know, which like there's a dark psychic force. And then Andrew Yang would be like, it's scarcity. And it actually means the same thing. Cause Andrew Yang is like a Chinese doctor, right? And lineage is that, so that started to make sense. They're actually very compatible in their thinking style in some ways. So I think that's like a really interesting thing. But, um, yeah, that's like, um, yeah, that, that's like a very interesting, Marianne was also, I think, a very interesting figure in terms of like where American politics might go, hopefully in the next 20 years, in terms of having a system thinker at the top level, executive levels of government. Andrew Yang also represents that too, I think. You know, I mean, people who are like, um, my favorite quote of Andrew was like, he was doing a, a AMA on YouTube. And um, he was like, so what is the problem with the economy? And then he was like, hmm. That was the first lead off question. He was like, hmm. And this guy's ancestors are strong with him, man. Like, I, I feel the vibes. So he was like, so there's this Buddhist parable. And this is how he started on, of an elephant. And there's, you know, I don't like the, using the word blind. So I would say like people who are up close to an elephant. So they're touching certain parts of the elephant. And one person's going like, the elephant is a dark, scaly uh rough thing and then other person would be like it's uh it's an ivory like cylinder or whatever like based on how close you are to the elephant you think it's a different thing and then he said that's basically what people do with the economy and that's exactly the buddhist parable i tell when people ask me about what white supremacy is because there are like oh is it a system of oppression is it belief social programming and i'm just and you know and i use that and it's like yeah people are looking at it this very close distance when they actually move move out what we think white supremacy is just kind of like a an energetic imbalance in the very Taoist sense. It's very simple. It's actually just stuck energy. It's just trauma. That's all it is. Um, so I think that's like a very interesting thing um, about where the future of like systems thinking and that type of way of seeing the world is going to take um, and where, how that encroaches in our politics. I think it could be a really interesting thought, you know, and, you know, 2020 was super interesting for that. And it was interesting to see that, you know, there was parts thinkers like Bernie Sanders, essentially, and they're both progressive, so-called, that left leftist fraction between systems thinkers and parts thinkers. And there's this mimetic friction deeply, actually, within the Democratic Party. So I think that was also very interesting to see. And you also see that people like Andrea just kind of pulled from all sides of the spectrum because he doesn't care. He's like, I only care about behaviors. I don't care about ideas. I just care about behavior. So he's actually uh, what we, what me and Derek called like a, a cultural somatic candidate because he actually understood cultural somatics natively. So I think that's very interesting. Derek probably has more to say that from their own point of view. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's just that like, there's a reason why your nervous system feels settled if you walk into a room and there's an indigenous grandmother there. It's the same, pre- it's the same premise. It's like, but, but the problem is that a lot of people don't understand that sensing quality. Why, like they don't even register sometimes why they, that they are relaxed until like two hours later. But if you get really fine tuned with this, it's cause it's an, it's the orientation methodology or system is a navigational tool. Projection is also a navigational tool if we use it that way. If we use projection to bypass our own discomforts, we're not getting anywhere, but we think we are. But if instead we use projection as a kind of like what Tata's saying, I'm feeling a big scaly thing. But you don't automatically say it must be an elephant or it must be a lizard because you don't have enough data. Because your 
in a navigational seeking mindset in which you're constantly trying to get more accurate clues because you're like, how I know where I am. I got to know where I am. So you're doing this thing that's very functional, but the, 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 one of the issues about sort of like Western colonial non animism is that they, they're really sure that they know where they're at. They're really sure that they know where they're at right now. Absolutely. 150%. And if you say no, I'm going to have a problem with it. That's how sure they are. They're so sure that they'll get angry. See, so this is the, this is the storyline, right? This is the cultural somatic posture or embodiment or like terra firma or access. You know, this is the firmament of a being who has learned to make decisions in a certain way. And they don't have another option to make decisions. So you better not take away their decision making apparatus or else the system will go into fight. It's automatic. It's an automatic thing. But if we, as people who actually go, hey, I have good intentions. How do I have good behaviors too? Like if we just take it on like a kind of like skill or, you know, clowning practice of like, I'm going to playfully go through my life in a, in a way where I just like, what is this? Oh, that's that. It smells like this. You know, like you kind of just like smell all the fruits and you, you get burned by the fire once or twice and you're like, Oh, I'm not going to do that again. You know, like you just kind of go around learning things a little bit here, but you have this way of learning. It's not the same as like, I'm confused about what this is. Can you tell me what it is? Oh, it's a rock. Okay, great. I put a rock on it and throw it over in the corner, you know. I wrote a research paper about it. <laughs> and then I write a research paper. And I'm like, this is a rock. This is what rocks are. This is what they do. And a wise person told me this. So it's 100% true. And it's like, wait a second. What you really want to ask is like, hey, what do you think this is? And then they go, okay, so I have an idea about what it is, but what are you, what are you sensing? What do you think it is? And not even like what you think it is, but like, what do you sense that it might be before we even get there? And then I can tell you what I sense this might be too. And then we can compare notes, you know, rather than this highly meaning, like the stakes of meaning and identity are really high. It's really high and we can go over threshold very quickly because they're high stakes. So we have to find ways of learning that lower the stakes of our nervous system's threat response. And that's a lot of, you know, back to Naomi's point about like the politics of 2020 is really about that that threshold and those stakes of idea, identity and meaning, right? And needing a different template. And so there's a huge, there's actually a huge seismic mimetic shift happening. And it's, you know, I thought, you know, I was all in on that happening, but I think the reality is that, um, but I think there is some singularity. There is some like kind of, I think cultural somatics is part of a grand unified theory. It is a kind of that approach, right? It, it, like cultural somatics, as is, is we're conceiving, is built to eat up anthropology, quantum physics. It's it's there to like gobble, 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 gobble. Like go out into academia and start eating all these fields and saying, oh, no, no, like, you know what I mean? Proposing, proposing an idea that's very philosophical, actually. You know what I mean? And integrating media, all the McLuhan, hyperobjects, hyper objects, quantum physics. It's like... So that's kind of like how we see the, you know, I don't know if the cultural somatics is going to rule the world or something. It's going to Does it practice intermittent fasting? Kind of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. You know, CS coins or, and people, but I mean, you know, there's going to be like civilization collapse and, you know, cultural somatic proliferation maybe, or at least just this, 
idea that on like an individual community governmental level that, oh, cultures are bodies. We need to deal with emergence on every layer, on every layer. And I think 2020 was like the first sign that there's hope in that there are actually people available and there will be more in the future to go to the top level of government that actually can collaborate the most bottom levels of the individual and up because they understand and they see the holistic system. There are people. And we see, we saw that in 2020 and, and they, you know, were, they were across ideological lines. That's the point you see, like there's like Andrew Yang c- attracted people from all these ideological so-called parties because they all could feel the alignment of like this integral model, an integrative model of health, right? right. It's holistic systems, concentric nested thing that we talk about networks. Yeah. They go, oh, right, no, that thing. And if you can get with people like that, you could actually have like so-called like you could just have open dialogue where you still disagree, but you stay in secure attachment because you're all sort of you're all you all keep looking for clues and you're all really in that mode. Like you're all playing the same game, more or less, more or less. Right. I want to mention this aspect that I'm tracking about the now which, uh, Dare, you reminded me of when you mentioned the indigenous woman in the room and how you feel and how you feel afterwards. Uh, you know, whenever I've been in the presence of someone that has that presence, like Eddie Wu, who is a, who's a Tai Chi master in Toronto, where I used to train, um, there's this sense that, um, I can tell that you see my bullshit. I know that you see all of it and you're still with me. And, the aspect that I'm tracking culturally and what makes me so curious about cultural somatics and its application, and I do hope it takes over the world, <laughs> is uh, that I feel that what several egregores are trying so hard to do is to say, I see your bullshit and I need to destroy you now. And so I need to know what, how, how we can become more like the indigenous woman in the room or like, like Eddie Wu, the Tai Chi master that where it's like, I see all your bullshit. I know where you're at and I'm going to track you and help you as I see you move through these things. Yeah. I have a story about that. Like, um, so when I first met there, right, I wrote an article called, um, uh, whiteness is cultural complex trauma. So, talking about white supremacy as ancestral attachment behavior and people fucking hated it because they're like, no, whiteness can't be a social illness and like it's a mental health issue. And then people will get off of, you know, like it was just silliness, but I was getting attacked like crazy. And then in the midst of that, I connected with dare, but right before I connected with dare actually. So this is interesting. I think this is before I connected with dare. Uh, I went to what, um, like the pool, the sauna. Cause I was just like getting assaulted on the internet. And at the sauna, there was this uh, indigenous elder who was in what they called a white man sweat lodge. So it was like the pool sauna. And they were just like talking to young men there. That's all they were doing. And they're talking to them about like, I don't know, just elder stuff about being a man and being an adult, you know, because everybody's a dude. And then uh, so, you know, the men left and I just asked a question is like, so, you know, where does your, you know, where, where does your, where does your kindness come from? So, and this is a story he told, and this is when like time gets fucking loopy, right? It goes like, oh, you're having a psychedelic experience all of a sudden. Cause he's like, well, so let me tell you, um, my people are okay. And it's everybody else that is fucked. 
He said, so, you know, these drunks and, um, drunks and addicts, you call them, that are walking the streets and sleeping on them. He said, those are, um, those we call warriors because who else is a warrior, but somebody who puts their body on the line to protect your, protect your people. I was like, well, okay. I'm in some crazy shit now. <laughs> you know, it's emotional to hear that. It's emotional to talk about it. And then he said, um, so, and then, you know, then there are, you know, then there are healers and teachers. And then he basically said, I was once a warrior. And then a medicine man came to me and said, now it's your time to become a healer. And then I became a healer. <laughs> and he's essentially saying he got out the streets in lay language, right? Does that make sense? You know what I mean? And then he said, eventually, a teacher came to me and said, now it's time for you to be a teacher. And that's what I do now. And everybody thinks the joke is on us, but the joke is on them. We are okay because we have our warriors. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of like, well, you can't fuck with that now, right? So the goal is to get those people into government, essentially, is to get that piece of knowledge up into the highest level of the government. And that's what we call... Um, that's what people call the resurgence or decolonization process in a lay language. But the the core of what that is, is that I think that process and yeah, I mean, that changed my life because it's like, okay, my like reality shifted of time and stuff in perspective. And I al already thought that way, but he basically said, you know, I, you know, he, he really confirmed as like, no, the way you're thinking about this is correct. Like it is true. No, like, you know, the way entire way you're thinking about the world in a lay way is is contradictory to a spiritual reality. And the more you walk in the spiritual reality that I'm sharing with you, the more things will go right. But it might not make sense easily, which is kind of like basically in the nuts and bolts of what he said. And then I and then I think uh, me and Derek got in touch with each other a few weeks later and I learned more about animism. So that's actually kind of like the pathway that happened. Yeah. So, you know, that's, I think it can, I mean, cultural somatics is not meant to take over the world. It's meant to transition the world into a different society that cultural somatics disappears in, I think, and build statues for us. No, <laughs> no, top all those statues. <laughs> Don't build anything. <laughs> you know, there's HTML links to our website. There you go. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Not even, not even, not even. Yeah. But the, no, there's something I want to loop back to real quick. Cause I mean, that's like the beautiful lived experience way of like, no, that's, that's, that's really what it is. It's like secure attachment to death includes that, like that's that cosmology that that indigenous elder transmitted through their presence. That's it. There's just like sitting in the field, right? They're just like radiating this chi that is like a whole different world. And you sit in it and you're like, Oh, this is better than my world. This is like better. This is like way better. It's actually more of who I am. And so the reality is, is that you can, you can think like an animist, but you actually have to like behave like an animist more than you have to believe you're an animist. You have to behave like one. And so when you, Naomi said earlier, what do I do as like an organizer or just a concerned citizen when I'm in a room and I'm basically like, we just got hijacked by, fucking beings or whatever you want to call them we just got hijacked or somebody did right is that like you're in that moment you can do some triage 
But on some level, you realize that you're already too late and you should have done triage before you walked into the room. And so what that means is you have a practice of consistent, sincere rituals to essentially acknowledge the spirits that you will not be able to control or defeat in your lifetime. And you acknowledge them as a welcome guest at the dinner table and also maybe stand over there a little, please. Like, I, like I'm not going to try to eradicate you from the universe. I'm not going to play that game because that's the ghost game. Oh, I got banished. I'm going to banish you now in a thousand years. Like, no, you have to be a non-exile, a non-carceral model. But that doesn't mean you can't have isolation or quarantine or mediation between relationships or space or distance, right? All of that's like on the table still. So you go, hey, spirit of sociopathy, I know that you exist. And in this moment, I'm leaving a bottle, a small bottle of scotch for you right here so that you know where to find it. And I'm using my words in my body to make sure that you know where to find this because don't you fucking come after me and tell me that I didn't do this because we have an arrangement now. You hear me, buddy? And that's the testing of the, that's all of it. And you do that day in and day out until you get a sense of like, oh, I feel something a little bit more relaxed in my body or something. And you just work with it in a way where you're like, it's not always going to be perfect. It's going to be unknown and a bit messy, but you just keep going like, oh, right. When, before I go to this march or this protest or this activist meeting or this whatever, before I get in that threshold, before I step in that egregoric dome of atmosphere, I'm just going to take a moment and be like, trees, you got my back, um, mountains of my ancestors, yo. And you take a moment and you're just like, oh, and I maybe I need to make sure... I do something for that spirit because that spirit's not just walking away because I said hello to it. They need a little more from me. They need me to sit a little closer. And I don't want to sit a little closer, but I might have to develop that in this moment. Like all of this happens in this like quantum world, right? Where you're like, oh, what would happen if instead of getting angry at the ancestors of white supremacy who come into these bodies, what if I pulled up a chair for them and I spoke to them very compassionately for 30 minutes and listened for 30 minutes with no reflection and no judgment. Just like, tell me what you've got to tell me that you haven't been able to tell me before. I'm not going to take it personally. I might have to write it down. I might have to get some distance from it, but uh, here it is. Here's your, here's your soapbox chance. And it might be really over your threshold, so you have to manage that. But the point is, is that these elders are doing that. These I'm trying to reverse engineer what these elders have already done, which is essentially eat the demon and say, you could have a home here. Be part of my body. I will eat you, and you will be never alone again. That's the bodhisattva way. It's like real tantra. It's like nothing is evil. I just have to get skilled enough to look it in the eye. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The the eating is that's real. Right. Yeah, the elders. Yeah, we're trying to reverse engineers. I think a big description of my, me and Dare's work comes down to is reverse engineering. What it's like. What 
it's like in dance, we kind of like, it's kind of like we look at videos of OGs all the time on YouTube and try to dissect what they're doing. Or like you watch slow Neos monk play and you're just like confused about trying to break it down analytically, reverse engineer it, and then trying to work it out. I think we're at that level. So we may never reach that level to be honest, but it is the thing that we're trying to do is that reverse engineering, because then more people will be able to understand the mechanics of it and it will create a higher baseline for society. Not everybody's going to turn into Thelonious Monk. Probably neither me nor dare, if that makes sense. Maybe we'll never turn into an elder. And this is just our job to kind of just explain to the children like what children can learn. And that's just our job for... Um, but yeah. So, it feels like Rappy Uppy, eh? Do you think? Well, hey, I bet. I mean, I mean unless you guys... Uh, excuse me. Unless y'all have somewhere else to be... It's like one or two points that I really wanted to. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking just like mm. a starting to land because that was a bit yeah. of an emotional kind of like passage to. Indeed. Um, well, yeah, yeah. one of the things that that um, both of you have brought up at various points in this call so far, and and get into much more detail in your your writing and your other appearances is, uh, and and in particular, uh, Tata, you you talked about this in. Two pieces on the site, on your site, Selfish Activist, that I'll link to in the show notes, one on the cultural somatic paradox and one on life is a dance, violence is a choreography, but so is justice. And part of it is the way that uh, being possessed by these uh, egregores or, you know, living with a partic- within a particular body of cultural trauma results in... Um, physiological postural movement changes in the person and how <clears throat> this means that uh, I really like the, the, the map that you provide uh, to the sort of equal, like, like different, but reciprocal versions of the white cultural Soma and the black cultural Soma and how um, the black cultural Soma has much more, access to dance and ritual. And, you know, I was thinking about this in relationship to the emergence of jazz in the 1920s, which has been widely characterized as a response to the trauma of the first world war and the, the way that it interrupted people's expectations of this sort of progress narrative. And there's something about improvisation, which you also talk, you touch on it about with respect to funk. Um, and I was thinking about recently, uh, in terms of like breakdancing is just really fast yoga, you know, that like both that there's like, it is a difference in time scale, but like both of them have their origins in a completely improvisational relationship and like allowing the body to speak through you. And, um, I've been exploring that in my own practices recently, like not trying to learn new yoga movements from people, but try to allow my body to teach them to me. Um, and that this is part of, this is like related to the the legitimacy crisis of our institutions and the failure of our leadership right now, because everything is changing so fast. And, and so, um, you know, it's presenting such a challenge to the ways that we have encoded expertise and, and, and knowledge and authority in the world. And so I just, that's related to tie the last little piece on here. That's related to something I really wanted to ask the two of you about the 
the spirit of white supremacy and of the settler mindset, because I have a, a white friend from college who now teaches at an Indian university and has been very, I would say, well populated by a lot of the uh, social justice rhetoric that has a lot of really brilliant, important things to say. But also, I think, as you've mentioned in other shows, seems to sort of like, in some cases, counter colonize what's going on inside people of European descent and like, you know, claim that it's like settler guilt that is causing people to quote unquote play Indian or to, to uh, like, he was actually pointing to some discourse on the origins of, of abstract impressionism and saying that this was a complete appropriation rather than an earnest attempt by by people with no, with a broken connection to the land and a lost basis of eldership and a lost set of spiritual traditions to, you know, do a desperate jump start of all of those things. And it's like this, there's, there's both obviously like, you know, people that have only grown up with tools of identity expression through consumerism are not going to know how to do that any better than by buying native artworks or that kind of thing possibly but anyway those two those two fields one one the field of the way that this is expressed through movement and then you know how to deal with the differentiations that you make between different kinds of inherited traumas and in traumas that that occur in people that are that have more material resources and then just like the way that this shows up in dance and the the growing popularity, I think, of the kinesthetic arts as a way of managing these sort of more acknowledged ubiquitous traumas. That's a lot there, but like that's a great place to like if we can cover that, I feel we can wrap this and I feel good about it. You know? Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's grounded. No, that's cool. That's like kind of like reorientation right there almost. After a little bit of we went into elder like crazy land. Well, in we, terms we, had, of, like, we had a minor psychedelic experience together where there might have been tears <laughs> that were shed. Um that was real. And now it's like and the pragmatic is that like we gotta get back on this road. And it's okay but like next time the detour comes to cry, take it. You see what I'm saying? It's like, it's not all about like rushing to this place. It's actually like, oh, you missed all the roses. That was, that was where God was trying to bless you. And, um, I don't know what to say about that sometimes. Um, yeah, but Tata, like, I feel like you have like a really good grasp on the like postural affectations of these traumas, you know? Yeah, maybe. And I think there's some like, remember we talked about animism and dissemination of, the dance and practices. I feel like that's your wheelhouse. So I'll transition it kind of that way and we wrap it up. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see what yeah, we're doing. Yeah. So like the thing about one, the kind of paradox that develops, you know, the cultural somatic paradox, um, you're going to post the article. So um, it's basically the thing that the elder was talking about is that my people are okay. You were fucked. As an indigenous person, our culture is more intact than yours. Our traditions are more intact. We protect them. You know, that's their language in this kind of methopoetic universe that they're protected by looking as if we're down on the ground and everybody else is sick. It's kind of like, and then of course there is the other reality is the indigenous people have some of the highest suicidal rates, um, highest rates of poverty everywhere. Um, 
you know, and this is not limited to indigenous people, this is limited about black folks and brown folks, you know, folks of color, you know, trans people, you know, you, you, you name it, right? This is what's happening. Um, so that's just like the paradox of like, um, you know, on a simple level, if you talk about dance, like, uh, you know, I'm a street dancer of like 10 years, so popping and which is a West Coast dance from LA and Calv, LA, um, uh, Oakland, uh, Fresno and a bunch of other places and, you know, down up and down the West Coast. But what you have is the reality that like for many like people of, you know, white culture or so called, the first time they ever dance in a circle and have to improvise in is like often like they're by the time they're age like 30, 40 at like some somatic dance class. Like they have to go to a workshop and that's the first time they ever stepped into a circle. And then imagine that experience and how that's transformative for a, you know, a white person, you know, culturally white person, you know, I didn't have that in my family either. So I probably include myself there too. And, uh, and then, you know, compare that to a person who has like cultural blackness and that they've done that probably about a thousand times by the time they're 20. So what, and think about the difference of resiliency in their nervous system. This is very simple. You know, regardless of, you know, and of course, like the material inequities and things like that, all those things play in. But it, there is this paradox that develops there. And I think um, we just are not understanding or available to that difference. It's actually quite profound. If you think about it in those terms, right? Literally, a black person might have danced in a circle, improvised throughout their life every like three days a week for about 20 years. And a white person shows up to the studio the first time in their life and they're being dropped in a circle. It's like the black person's an elder then. Like just, I mean, when you talk about scale then, right? Like you could never catch up. This is, this is kind of like, and I don't say black, I mean, a person acculturated into blackness and, and been, you know, black popular vernacular community, you know, dance communities, right? So you, you just cannot, you cannot touch that. <laughs> so that there's a level of humility in realizing you cannot touch that. Um, and, you know, there's something really, really important about getting very real with that. And I think we're at a moment, I think that's, it's really healthy to be like, oh, so a lot of, you know, that exists, let's say for like, maybe like an animist person has done ritual throughout their life. So by the time they're 20, they've been in a hundred rituals. And then you get some person who's never done it, has been working a dust job all their life. It gets, you know, goes on their first ayahuasca ceremony. That's a way different, you know what I mean? You're just not starting at the same place. There's a couple of biological concepts that you're bringing up for me. I mentioned earlier inflammation, decided to stop there, but um, there's a concept of heart rate variability, which uh, is the notion that uh, you can tell the the general health, the cardiovascular health of someone actually more in terms of their parasympathetic nervous system based on whether their heartbeat is very regular or not very regular. Because it turns out that lack of irregular, sorry, re lack of regularity or rather, um, maybe I should say that the other way because a lack sounds like a bad thing. You don't want to be too regular. So uh, that that sense of irregularity also carries with it the ability to adjust to different stresses in different situations. And so yeah, at yeah. rest, if your heart rate is more variable, you are more capable of de dealing with uh, a wide diversity of different scenarios. 
Um, yeah. I worked on a product a few years ago at a place called Core Wellness. We did a, a meditation device. So I worked right. on the piece of the equation where we took the data from that device and tried to see whether your heart rate was highly variable or not very variable um, in the course of a meditation because you can kind of measure your heartbeat through there and actively giving people the biofeedback to say, that was a good meditation. We can tell because your heart rate was like all over the place. Good job, right? Um, and the other aspect that you brought up for me is the the difference between sewer rats and lab rats. Uh, when you're talking about dance circles, um, right, like the, right, right. I don't know how many different studies, but um, there were a few that centered on taking um, New York City sewer rats and exposing them to a wide variety of, of stressors. Uh, mostly germs and things like that to see like, you know, how resilient they were. They're very resilient. <laughs> uh, and lab rats, on the other hand, if they are raised in sterile conditions, you throw one little curveball their way and they just kill right over. Uh, and it's this yeah, exposure yeah. to, you know, have you, how many times have you been in the dance circle in your life? You know, do you kill right over? <laughs> from the stress of yeah. being seen, from the stress of having to express yeah. yourself in that moment, or do you do you know how to dance with it? Yeah, and that's also like the real question. You know, I don't know if the rat image is no. that's maybe <laughs> triggering to people. So, you know, we're talking about race and stuff because you know because we're basically saying like one race of people are the sewer and one people are race of people maybe in the lab that might be the metaphor that people are going to but let's just really stick with let me say for the record that uh it is because those studies are centered on rats and not the comparison of yeah no yeah i'm just trying to get people to come back into like that no this is just about stimulus and real world environment right right? and what you have with somebody um what you have with white folks is like they're in a laboratory that's exactly what's happening and then the people who are not white, this is like really binary, it's super binary, but like are being exposed to all the stimulus all the time, but they have the tools to manage that that's been left over. So what happens is this is the privilege piece is that probably, yeah, when you expose somebody who doesn't have the tools and have, doesn't have experience, they, they'll melt down. So, you know, so there's this real thing about privilege and stuff that it's hiding is that a real lack of resilience in the bodies of privilege and a lack of tools to deal with stimulus. And in a social justice sense, people talk a lot about material redistribution, which is like one part of the equation, I suppose. But when you're actually, I think, talking about eldership, this is where indigenous elders go, they just see your lack. <laughs> they're not in scarcity necessarily in a spiritual sense. So they're like, well, I just see you are lacking. And so I see the need for us to redistribute our gifts to you. Right. And I think that's a lot of the reason why the West got like Zen Buddhism, the West got indigenous animism and stuff. There's a, there's a purpose there. Those modalities, you know, Maladoma Somme was sent to the, I mean, if you know Maladoma, who's from the Daguerre people, um, I think that's a place in Ghana, so-called Ghana now, but like was essentially, his name is, means the one who makes friends with the enemy. And they sent an indigenous elder to be to America to tell the people how to live. Like this is what, this is what animist people are doing around the world. That's what indigenous elders are essentially doing. And those gifts may become commodified into part of capitalism, but the intention behind it has a life of their own. And maybe that's where we can kind of like segue off and Derek can talk about that. We can 
chat it down because I think this is like a lot of the where we have, you know, about cultural appropriation and that subject, you know, and the spread of the yeah. spread of means. Totally. Yeah. I mean, on some level, on some level, we can't decide what spirits talk to us, but we can decide how we respond. So there is a bit of like, you know, when I was younger, it was very clear that some ancient Japanese people were trying to help me from like somewhere that I had no idea. And I didn't have words for it at the time. You know, I was like 18 or something. And I wasn't like talking about ancestors or anything like that. But they were helping me from the goodness of whatever they wanted. To. Like it wasn't, I wasn't like, oh, I need Japanese ancestral help. I wasn't trying to get actively adopted into their lineage, but I did have experiences where I was really helped by their lineages, like out of like, you know, just helping me. And so some people are getting that stuff, you know, like, yeah, totally. And this is like a lifelong thing, right? That I'm trying to integrate. Like, why are the Japanese somas trying to help me? I don't have no, I have no idea, but like, that's like a thing that I have to wrestle with. Right. Fucking no. Um, but a lot of people have this. They they get adopted by some kind of indigenous, whether that's Chinese Kung Fu, martial arts, whether that's Taoism, whether that's, you know, um, Ifa, African religion, or Santeria, or Voodoo. Or, like, like, there are people from the not native cultures kind of like, oh, you hung out with our auntie, come and come and, you know, come into the place. And then they get like a kind of like, they get a kind of like edited or modified version of the Ten Commandments, as it were. It's like, it's like you're not, you're family, but you're not family, family. So we need to like give you a responsibility. So when you go out in the world, you use this stuff, but not in a fucked up way. Like they give you a bit of like this, like we love you and we've, we're training you and you're still gotta like do this trustworthiness thing. Right. So that's adoption in a certain sense is like, some people are actively trying to be adopted by cultures that are not their recent blood ancestry, right? Like that's actually happening. Like, you know, why are all these people like going to do yoga classes and getting teacher training? Like, because on a spiritual level, those gods and goddesses are like, yeah, you want some love? I've got plenty to give. I've got plenty. And you don't remember who your goddess of love was because it's been colonized too long. But I remember, so come with me for a little while. Like, that's kind of like me giving a mouthpiece to the gods of like, hey, you're worthy of love because everyone's worthy of love. You're all my children. Um, but you probably should actually be three doors down. Be but you don't remember her name or how to get there, do you? And they're like, come with me for a little bit and maybe you'll remember. And some, that's actually what happens to some people. Like they hear me and Tata talk or something happens and they actually go, Oh, that's what's happened to me. Like I, that's really real. I get calls like this all the time, right? I was really into this and it was really helping me. And now it doesn't feel right. And like something else is in my dreams. I'm like, yeah, something else is calling me. Like there's another piece there. And, um, these are non-human agential forces that are, in long-term reciprocal relationship with us. So it's an old bargain. It's an old bargain. And like, just because some child doesn't remember that their great, 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 great person and family and village made this bargain doesn't mean that the spirit doesn't remember. The spirit actually is like, oh, I remember that part of the bargain where that ancestor said, someday I'm going to need you to help someone that I don't even know yet because they won't remember how to call you. And that spirit's like, 
cool. I'll, I'll keep that on speed dial. And then they fly into your life when you're like a five-year-old kid because you had a surge of energy that was dangerous. And that spirit was like, oh, the alarm bell went off and I made that deal. Thank you so much. I'm going to go to that person. And that's kind of like what's been happening. Our ancestors cast spells to make us well or to help, hopefully help us be well. Right. And those be, those spells are sort of mediated by other beings that have agency in the world that we're not in control of. And thank God we're not, because if I was in control of my heart beating, I'd be dead. Right. Like that's real. And so we have to understand that, that what makes my heart beat the way it does is a confluence of factors. But the net effect of that is that my heart is beating. Right. Like there's a real profoundness to that, like realness, like, oh, if I really feel that there's this buoying up of me in everyday life, like my breath breathes me, my blood cells are like, like all the mitochondria in my cells more or less have original instructions that they're following. I can influence that for sure. Like if I eat too much candy, I'm going to influence those beings. But on some level, the gratitude and the real like practice comes down to like when you wake up in the morning, what do you, what do you recognize? Do you recognize this connected world of all of these spirit beings that caused you to wake up, the sun to rise and all these other things to happen, gravitational forces, physics, all this stuff? Do you recognize that as like your world or do you immediately start to worry and think that worrying is going to solve your problems? Because there's like kind of two, there's like two methods, right? It's like, Cartesian logic of like, if I focus on the problem, I'll fix it. And then there's this other thing, which is that the problem is a distributed effect. It's a distributed effect. And I'm just, I'm just receiving one part of the distributed effect, which might, which might mean that I have a headache, right? Like that might, that's what it might mean. I might have a headache because this network effect is happening. And because I have a headache, I have a vested interest in trying to help that network effect get a little bit smoother right through my own body first can i cure, can i soothe my own headache and then say thank you and then hopefully someone can mirror neuron that shit on the street and have a better time right because we're all mirror neuroning all the time even trees and sewer rats right like it's all mirror neurons and what we mirror what we attach to in that way tells us a lot about how we move through the world Right. And so it's all connected, but we can also reverse engineer it from our little vantage point, which is like, if I change the way I walk, that changes the way I think and that changes the way I behave and that changes the way I relate. And then the reciprocation comes back the other way. Like, you know, that's a good pin to put in it. Y'all have any sort of parting thoughts? I really appreciate you taking the time to, to do this, and I look forward to directing people to the, the Ritual as Justice School and your other online offerings. But Yeah, I think it's just um, for folks to like sit and kind of like um, – the last piece, I think, is a really big one. Like, like Maladoma was literally, you know, sent to uh, – Meet the Enemy, which is the British Empire that had colonized Ghana. Um, and then also, uh, you know, like, uh, is it, yeah, Morihei Ueshiba, who's like the founder of modern Aikido, 
Like he's literally said, like, what is this art for? He's like, oh, it's for world peace. This is post-war Japan. The internet doesn't even exist. Like he went to war. He fought in uh, World War II, right? So these are the context. And that's kind of like where a lot of the things that we see around us, because his work is in our work. You know, Aikido, Aiki practice is a big part of my work, even though I'm not a practitioner. Um, the idea of it, of meeting the enemy, um, I think that's a big part of Dare's work, is eating the enemy. Maybe not meeting, but eating them. <laughs> Who knows, right? But I think there's just like a lot of like um, uh, recognition for appreciation that that is actually happening, even amongst the commodification of things. Da, 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 da. You know, we can get caught into like, you know, is this a colonial thing to be practicing this thing? There's like a bigger picture out there of like, sure, there might be a problem, but sometimes there's the medicine can also be inside of the problem in the sense that like capitalism is one of the ways in which through these ideas have spread. And, you know, now's the time maybe for that to be held accountable, but, or be more, um, reach another stage of healing. But yeah, life's a lot more complex. And I think, you know, one of the things that we like to do is like to be able to deal with that complexity and be like, yeah, no, it's not just, um, there's like, the form of Aiki or the form of Maladome or the rituals, they, they all, they're all mimetic entities and they have choice and agency of their own, which is a big thing I learned from Dare. You know, it's like, you know, like, uh, um, there's like, um, like, like a culture appropriated, uh, like symbol or pattern. Cause this was a conversation between me and Dare and we had a whole thing about like, um, is the shirt that Dara was wearing, is it culturally appropriative or is it, what is it? What else is it? And it was like, is this, is the shirt and the, I think it's a Navajo print. The Navajo print itself have a mind of its own that wants to be seen. And I find this, the latter more interesting than the former as a way of primarily engaging, you know, it's like, Oh, maybe the latter actually has an opinion and we just have to hear that opinion more and respect the meme as opposed to shut the former isn't is kind of like a scarce model where you're shutting down the meme. And so you end up actually end up what you end up doing then is killing the indigenous thing, which is actually, I find extremely oppressive in and of itself. So we have to, we have to pay attention to that. And I think, you know, the branded animism that we work with is really paying attention to respecting the mimetic entities themselves and recognizing and having appreciation for where they help us out and, and just notice how, how weird the world is once you get into that. So, yeah. yeah. So I see that appreciation. Thank you. So this is a meme as well, this podcast, right? So there we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful. It was a fun conversation. And I think like to recognize a little bit of what you're saying is that if you put on a very simple rhythm and you closed your eyes and started dancing and you were very thankful, a ritual would come to you. It would find you a ritual that maybe your ancestors knew, or maybe a new ritual that wants to be born or something that's meaningful to you, but it has its agency of its own. And so we don't necessarily like what like what Michael was saying about letting the body teach him yoga poses, which essentially is just movement, right? It's like, here's some movements that might help you because you're you and not me. Um, 
but there is something about like we if we set up the container, which is more like a game or a improvisational score, really. It's a it's if you're in those worlds, it's like that. If you set up the container and ask for something and become be very direct and simple with your ask, don't get too specific, but don't get don't be too general either. Which is essentially prayer. You know, it's like create feelings and energy flows with your words. Um and then you just like let your body move around. You could basically re you could basically have a psychedelic experience. You could you could have it. Your biochemistry would change. And it would if you got better at it, neurologically the ritual would come to you and the medicine would come to you through the ritual. You wouldn't even need to take anything. And I had to learn this the hard way. I had to learn this the hard way. I had to learn that like chasing the medicine when I could really just talk to the spirits of the medicine, do it once or twice, and then they'd tell me the rest of the way. And most people don't understand that yet. And the thing is, is they keep using the medicine, but the medicine is not like, the medicine's a catalyst and a reminder tool, but it's not your maintenance tool. You don't, you're not supposed to take it every day. You're not supposed to, you're supposed to do it remind, it's supposed to be special and you get reminded and you get new insights every time, but then you have to integrate it. And so to integrate it, you have to talk to the spirits of it all the time in between. It's not just when you put it in your mouth. So the ritual will come to you in that way and it will come. The whole package will be like a zip file. It's like a whole zip file that you have to go through for like five years in your life. You're like the file unzips in your mind, but you can't go through all the data at once. So we're all like that. Every human being has that capacity. It's just to the amount that we don't go over our threshold with it. But we can have it very simple. Like this podcast is the setup for a ritual. People listening to this podcast could have a mini ritual come to them in between the words of what we're saying. Because it's always available. But it's just about, oh... I, do do we want to have a relationship? Like when someone pings you and is like, hey, want to hang out? You have to make a choice. Do I want to hang out with that Soma? I want to ask the question like, oh, not right now. Or like, oh, maybe I'll take a chance. I'll take a chance and hang out with that person. Right? We're doing this all the time anyway. But we need to understand that we should do it all the time with all of these sort of pseudo non-tangibles. Because it's not like that. Cultures are living beings and they can touch you. And that's super real. Like they can literally touch you. And that's not a metaphor. Um, so. All right. Super thank grateful you. to thank be you. part of this. Thank you all. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you yeah. for hosting us. Thank you so Michael much. Naomi. Y'all have a yeah. great day. And yeah. <laughs> Thanks again for listening. Future Fossils is an independent ad-free, entirely listener-supported program. If you believe in the work that I'm doing and you want to help see it thrive into the unimaginable future, then you can avail yourself of all of the backstage goodies at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Or you can just leave a review at Apple Podcasts. That's more helpful than you know. Reach out to me personally at Michael Garfield on Twitter or Instagram. And have a wonderful eon.